Google. I found that picture on Google. Those weren't his feet, sorry. <laughs> All right, well, um, if you guys have your Bibles, please turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in the same seven verses that we were last week. Uh, this morning marks the halfway point um, in our series uh, entitled, How We Ought to Give. And as a church, uh, this is uh, kind of a stepping stone for us uh, in maturity. It's, it's the first time uh, as a church family that we have directly taught um, on money or finances or giving or anything like that. And, and the purpose, let me share with you again the purpose of this series. The purpose of this series is not to tell people how much they're to give. The purpose is not to say, here's the dollar amount you need to uh, obtain to give. It's not to say you need to give this percentage. But the purpose of this series is to equip us as a church with a framework so that we can faithfully steward all of our money. Um, because giving the, the money that we give to the church and that we set aside to give for good things um, isn't the only money that we're supposed to steward faithfully and unto God. All of our money is to be steward faithfully unto God. Um, the money we spend on our home, listen, debt, all of these things uh, should all uh, be viewed through a Christian framework for those who are in Christ. And last week, we looked at how we ought to give worshipfully. And together, we defined worship as the ongoing act of giving oneself to God in light of who He is, what He has done, as revealed to us in the Bible. And us giving worshipfully is the banner um, that this week, next week, and then the third week, uh, those topics all rest underneath. All of these, see, this morning we're going to talk about giving joyfully. And we cannot give joyfully unless we are worshiping. And we're going to see that this morning. Um, and so today, again, we're going to look at we ought to give joyfully. And here's the lie that each one of our hearts um, have believed. This is the lie that the world tells us. The goal in life is to be happy. Or it might be a slight version of that that would say God wants you to be happy. That is crammed down our throat. Be happy. Be happy. Follow your heart. Right? It doesn't matter what happens. Just follow your heart. And that is... It's a lie that the world tells us. And for most, money is the most practical way to obtain this happiness. You see, we might not necessarily worship money, but we worship the things that money brings, the happiness. There's a country song right now, uh, one that my kids love. It's cute to hear them sing it. Um, but in it, he, the guy kind of acknowledges the spiritual truth that money can't buy happiness, right? And that, that uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. But then he goes on and he says, but it can buy me a boat. And then it can buy me a truck to pull it. And I should stop or otherwise I'm going to break out in song. But in that, and that's the, listen, I, I share that because that's typically the attitude of our heart. We acknowledge the very real truth that money doesn't buy happiness, but it would sure be nice. I'd rather be unhappy with money than unhappy without money, right? That's kind of the attitude and the posture of our hearts and our lives. Or we convince ourselves we'll all be different than that. But for the Christian... 
Since we worship God and not money, we can give joyfully. It is possible. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time together looking at what is joy. We're going to define joy. We're going to talk about how do we get joy, and then we're going to talk about how do we give joyfully. So that's the outlook uh, for this morning. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7 say this, says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that he, uh, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that you would, um, Lord, I just trust actually that your heart has already been preparing, um, that your spirit, excuse me, has already been preparing our hearts for this message. I pray, God, that our hearts, God, would be um, enlightened this morning as to what joy is. God, protect us from the lies of the world. And I know, God, as, uh, Lord, as I, this has been a very challenging series for my own heart. Um, And I know, God, how quick our hearts are to rise up against um, being corrected in how we use and spend and earn our money. But I pray, God, for the courage and the strength today, God, to submit to your will. God, to love you most and to give joyfully. Amen. So in verse 2, we see here, now remember, in verse 1, he says, uh, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So again, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's writing to this church in Corinth um, in response to rumors that he had heard about them, but also in direct response to a letter that this church had sent Paul with a bunch of questions. And I'll remind you, like, like I said last week, these questions that they sent Paul weren't questions of sincerity and wanting to understand God's heart so that they could love him well. But these questions are usually the questions that our hearts have. Um, Okay, today's Valentine's Day, right? And and so uh, for those of us who, when we were younger and we grew up in the church, um, and I don't know, maybe this was common outside the church too, but when you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you know, the question that was always asked to the youth pastor, every youth pastor gets asked this question the most, and that is, how far is too far? Like, is it okay to kiss? Is it okay to kiss long, right? And, and, and those questions are not asked because the heart of that person uh, is wanting to respect the person that they're dating and because they want to love God well, but it's because they want to know exactly how much they can get away with. How much can they give in to the desires of the flesh and still be Christian? And that's kind of the, the mentality that, of this letter that they wrote to Paul. Like, they're, they're not sincerely learning. They're not saying... Paul, teach us how to love God most and to love our neighbors ourselves. Here's the areas where we're struggling. They wanted to just know, because, because 
as appropriate on Valentine's Day, the Corinthians were a really sexual bunch that had a lot of worldliness in their relationships. And so Paul wrote to correct that. So Paul is using a church. He says, um, at the end of verse 1, he says uh, that he, so he's reminding them, or he wants them to know, excuse me, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So Macedonia is another area that has churches. And so Paul, what Paul is doing is he's writing to the Corinthians, correcting issues and correcting theology, and he's using another church as an example. So he's saying, listen, here's a very real practice. When it comes to money, like God, is, God is, is, is moving, and there are people, there is churches, which is God's people, saved by God's power for God's purposes, that God is moving in their heart. And, and here's how you can see it. And he begins to use them as an example of how they should give. He uses them. And think about this, because in our day and age, we are quick to not want to look to other people or other churches that do things right. And there's some, there's some health in that. There's some, some safety in that, because other churches and other people aren't the goal, but Jesus is the goal. But as we're told in, in Hebrews, that there is a great cloud of many witnesses that have gone before us. There are other faithful, godly, Jesus-loving, disciple-making men and women in this world that we can look to as an encouragement and an example. There are other faithful, biblical, uh, Bible-teaching, right, disciple-making churches that we can look to as an example. And that's what Paul's saying. He's using them as an example. And one of the things that he tells them in verse 2, he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul says there was an abundance of joy in their giving. Not a little bit but an abundance of joy to the point where they were begging for Paul. They were saying, like, listen, we, it, we consider it a favor. You will be doing us a favor if you let us give to this need. Now, that is radically different than you and I typically tend to give. Usually, we don't set up our budgets and say, I am begging God for the favor of giving to this need. Usually we sit down and say, okay, what looks about right? What can I give so that my conscience is eased? Right? So that it doesn't ever come up that I don't give. But we aren't usually giving out an abundance of joy. So what is joy? If we are to give joyfully, if we ought to give joyfully, then what is joy? C.S. Lewis said that, joy, uh, said that the very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. Okay? I'm not big on the writings of C.S. Lewis, so I texted Aaron, or excuse me, Andrew this week to make sure that I understood what C.S. Lewis was saying. And I was right. Praise God. But this is what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying that joy is not based on getting what we want. Oftentimes, our joy, or what we would call joy, we're joyful when we get what we want. But C.S. Lewis writes that the very nature of joy makes nonsense of our common distinction between having and wanting. So what he's saying is that joy is completely separate from the things that you want and the things that you get or don't get. Joy is not compatible with those concepts. And so we're going to define joy this way. Joy 
is a deep, God-given delight in Christ and in working for Christ's kingdom. Joy is a deep, God-given delight in Christ and in working for Christ's kingdom. You see, there's a transformative truth about joy that's taught in this text this morning that we have to pause and look at. And I think this is probably, possibly, some of the influence for C.S. Lewis writing that, that joy makes nonsense of our distinction between having and wanting. And that is in verse 2 where he says, in, severe, in a severe test of affliction, they were abundantly joyful. You see, their joy was in the presence of severe affliction not the absence of it. You see, this tells us that joy is a condition of the heart and not a condition of circumstance. Only a heart change can allow anybody to be joyful in the midst of severe affliction. How does that happen? Why does that work? Well, think about our definition of joy. If joy is a deep, God-given delight in Christ and in working for Christ's kingdom, then it doesn't matter what I have or what I want and what I didn't get. Because my deep delight is in Christ, not in possessions or relationships or houses or retirement. It's in Christ. Who who, Who has promised to never leave us or forsake us? Christ. So does that mean that Christ is absent or present in the midst of our severe afflictions? It means that he's present. In fact, the Bible says that he is an ever-present help in times of trouble. See, they were able to give joyfully in the midst of severe affliction because their joy was a God-given deep delight in Christ. That doesn't go. In fact, if we had a right understanding of God, then we would know that severe affliction would move our hearts closer to Him rather than causing us to question Him and reject Him. Severe affliction is proof that humanity needs a Savior. Natural disasters, drive-by shootings, whatever the case may be, those are proofs that humanity needs salvation. Yesterday, uh, uh, Rustin is getting to the age where um, we began, or I, I have a little bit anyways, um, beginning to talk a little bit of political things with him, and he's aware of the election, and we sat down and watched a video yesterday of one of the candidates, and, and so he's beginning to, he was actually, it was pretty cool to hear him asking questions, and he's, he's a little bit intrigued, and, and it's a time in our country where we get to have somewhat of a say or a vote in the direction of the, of the country, right? And so what has happened is we've seen candidates rise and fall, and every year the, one of the biggest conversations during the political cycle, uh, or every four years, is the, what, the evangelical vote, right? And what we have seen happen is that there is a very, very loose definition for the term evangelical. Because really all that we're saying is we're finding Bible verses to back the candidate that we want because that candidate is going to make me more happy. 
that candidate is going to do the things that make me more happy, make me more comfortable in this country. Lowering my taxes, whatever, whatever it is. And that doesn't take away from the fact that we have a great, God has blessed us. Listen, living in America, living in America is a good gift from God. It's a blessing. But there's a tension that as Christians that we struggle with, and that is this. That's the American dream versus following Christ. So let's think about it for a minute. The tension is this, the American dream versus following Christ. America was founded on the principle of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's where the tension comes in. We agree with life. Amen, yes, we agree with liberty, right? That's great. And all too often, our hearts and our lives and our pursuits agree with the pursuit of happiness as well. You see, our country was somewhat founded on this idea that the ultimate goal in life is to be happy. To be happy. You see, the American dream says, do and gather whatever makes you happy. And we're really beginning to see the effects of this mentality because now we're beginning to argue what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. It's all relative all of a sudden. And that is a natural outworking of the pursuit of happiness because who are you to tell me what makes me happy or what doesn't? Following Christ says, die to yourself and put others' needs ahead of your own. It's a big, big difference. The world says pursue happiness at all costs. Every decision you make should be based on the pursuit of happiness. But God offers and gives something far better, far different, in fact. And so that brings us to our second question that we're going to answer together this morning is, where does joy come from? John Piper says this. John Piper says that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23 says this, says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So where does joy come from? It comes from God. That was part of our definition, right? It's a deep, God-given delight in Christ and in working for Christ's kingdom. Our joy does not come from the pursuit of happiness. The Christian's joy is not achievable through the pursuit of happiness. We follow a man, Jesus, who did everything that was the exact opposite of the pursuit of happiness. Think about his life. You realize who we follow, right? He was a homeless, poor, rejected person. He was homeless? Yes, he was homeless. When the rich young ruler wanted to follow him, he said, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was poor. 
He couldn't even pay taxes. Remember the story? They were entering a city and he didn't have taxes to pay. And so, of course, his disciples, thinking, or his disciples, knowing that they're with God, are like, ha ha, like they're probably in their minds uh, doing an inappropriate gesture with their hands uh, to the government because they're thinking, we're with God, we don't have to pay taxes. It's not what Jesus says. Give to Caesar what is due to Caesar, give to God what is due to God. And so, miraculously, he told them to go out, go fishing. They caught a fish. And the mouth of the fish was the money needed to pay taxes. Jesus paid taxes. Jesus didn't have the money to pay taxes. He was poor, homeless. And he ended up being crucified and beaten as though he were a rapist. So, where does joy come from? Joy comes from God's Spirit. And here's the good news about joy being from God's spirit. If joy is from God's spirit, it is therefore, by nature, it is eternal. Because joy comes from God's spirit, it is eternal. Happiness is from circumstances. Therefore, it's temporal. Think about your life. Think about your heart. Think about your ups and downs. Think about your possessions, your paychecks your vacations, how hard you worked. Praise God for hard work. How hard you worked, you saved. I'll never forget when I was in uh, junior high, I I babysat over the summer. I don't know why they let me babysit their kids, but they did. Uh, So I babysat over the summer, and I saved up all of my own money, and I went and bought uh, uh, my first ever gold glove, baseball glove. Right? Like, there's, that, that's good. Hard work is good. Nobody is denying hard work. In fact, as we saw last week, that hard work is a part of worshiping God with our resources. But had that glove have broken, been stolen, lent to my brother and lost for a very, 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 very long time, only to reappear years later? <laughs> my happiness is gone. The, the, the very thing that I spent all summer out of school working towards and, and hanging out with little kids, right, and working for them, putting my money aside and denying all these other things so that I could get this glove, was gone. And listen, the same, listen, money might not be the source or the, or the, the object of what you deem is happiness. It might not be money. But the way the world works is chances are it's going to take money to obtain whatever it is that you define as happiness. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a spouse. Well, you know what? You're going to have to have money to take that person to dinner and a car to drive them to dinner. Otherwise, they're not going to go. Money is attached to everything. Joy is from God's Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Joy can only be produced by God's Spirit. In ourselves, we do not have the desire to have a great and deep delight in Christ and working for his kingdom. In ourselves, our deep delight is in ourselves and working for our own kingdom. But since joy is from God's spirit, it is eternal. Now, the third thing, practically now, how do we give joyfully? 
how do we give joyful? If you have um, your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sorry, I didn't put those ones in the presentation. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, say this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How do we give joyfully? First, we look to Jesus. If joy is defined as a deep delight in Christ, a God-given deep delight in Christ, then we have to start by looking at Christ. Okay, so I got that. I looked to Jesus. I know Jesus died for my sins. That's what I've been told since I was a kid. How does that give me joy? What is it about what Christ did? How do I see and how does that, how does that cause me? How does that move my heart to give joyfully? We'll look again at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Here it is. Who for the joy... That was set before him. You see, in looking to Jesus, we recognize and believe as truth that what we are given in Christ is far more valuable than what our money can give us. You see, Jesus, it says that Jesus had for the joy that was set before him. What was this joy that was before Christ? The cross. That's what it says in verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. We look to Christ. We see, we realize that to have a deep delight in Christ, it means that we have to realize, that we have to believe that what Christ has given us is far more valuable than what the world or our money or our spouse or our kids or our jobs or our retirement or our sports team or our video games can give us. Jesus himself had a deep, God-given delight in God's plan to save sinners. For the joy, you see... Listen, Christ knew what he was coming to do when he came to earth. Christ being brutally tortured and dying a despised death was not a surprise. He knew that. He knew that. But yet, he counted it joy. He counted it as a joy. Matthew 13, 45 through 46 says, again, this is Jesus talking, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. How do we give joyfully? Christ is that great pearl. We view Christ as that great pearl. 
a pearl of such great value that we sell everything else that we have. Now, of course, what we're not saying as we're talking about how we should give, we're not telling you to go home and sell everything you have and then give that money to us because then we're going to have to give it all back to you because you can't live, right? Like that doesn't make sense. But what it does say is what it's saying, what it's teaching, what Jesus was teaching his followers is, if you will, that we sell all of our allegiances in this life. We sell them. We do away with them. We give them up willfully because we have found such great and surpassing value in having an allegiance to Christ. That's what he's saying. Our allegiance to happiness fails in comparison to the joy that God gives. Isn't it so much secure to go through life with an eternal joy that never leaves or goes away as opposed to constantly having pursue happiness? And then when happiness leaves you because it's fleeting, you have to go what? You have to go work hard to what? Get it back again. And then what do you have to do? You have to work hard to what? To keep it. You have to work hard to keep it. I read a great quote this week by um, Sinclair Ferguson, and, and I'm going to try my best to recall it, but it was the fact, something along these lines, it said that uh, in Adam, you were declared sinful, even though you did nothing wrong. How much greater that in Christ, you were declared righteous, though you have done nothing right. That is the value. That is the value that Christ came. He endured the cross. What is the cross? A picture of the cross teaches us of sacrifice. The cross teaches us of the severity of our sin and our rebellion against God. The cross teaches us of God's violent pursuit of a rebellious people so that rather than constantly be pursuing happiness, he could instill in them a deep, eternal delight. That's what the cross teaches us. Second, first, we look to Jesus. Second, we see our giving. We see giving as our good and eternal pleasure because of the good that it does for others. You see, Christ endured the cross because he had the promise of a future reward. Christ knew that the sacrifice was temporal. The effects of it were eternal, but the actual physical sacrifice was temporal. And he endured it and counted it as joy because of the great eternal reward that it bought. It was Jesus' good and eternal pleasure to give himself for others. And when we take, when we give joyfully, what we are doing is we are taking delight in Christ and we are taking not only delight in Christ, but also delight in working, excuse me, for Christ's kingdom. Because we know that when we give, it goes towards the good of others. Other people receive from what we give. And so we value that, the good that it does for others. We value the good giving does for others more than the good does more than the good uh, more than the good does for keeping it for ourselves. And there's so many examples of this in the New Testament. Acts chapter two, we see people selling their stuff so that everybody's needs are met. 
Philippians 2, 3, Paul tells that church and uh, the, the Philippian people to consider others greater than themselves. James chapter 2 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so, of course, James's point in that, in that area in chapter 1 and 2 is what James is trying to drive home to these Christians is that you cannot have faith unless it, or, excuse me, you do not have faith unless it produces good works. By nature, faith is a good work producing substance. And so to give joyfully. We give joyfully of our money because we know that in Christ we have been given something far greater than however much money it is we're putting in that little wood box over there. And we give joyfully because we know that no matter what that amount of money that we just put in that box could have bought us, the good that is going to do has a far greater and eternal reward than that temporal thing we would have bought with it. Now, as we wrap up, because money is not our God, and God has given us what money cannot, we are free to give joyfully. You see, if we worship money, or if we worship happiness, or if our life is dedicated to the pursuit of happiness, we cannot give joyfully, which means if we give, we are not giving worshipfully as we looked at last week. But because money is not our God, because happiness does not drive our lives, but God's love for us does, we can give joyfully. It is possible. Paul used the Macedonians as an example. Even in the midst of severe affliction and poverty, it goes on to tell us that they, they, they gave, they were, they were poor people. They didn't have a lot to give, but they did what it took because they had a deep delight in Christ and in working for his kingdom. So a couple of questions that I want to ask you in closing. Do you believe that God gives deep delight in Christ and in working for his kingdom? So really what I'm asking is, do you believe that God gives joy? Do you believe, listen, this might sound, sound basic to some of us, but, but let's just stop and strip away all of our preconceived notions for a moment. But do you believe that God gives eternal, lasting joy? That, can be, that is present even in the midst of severe affliction? Do you believe it in your heart or is it just something that you've heard about and never experienced? If you don't believe in this morning, I invite you to believe in faith and to ask God to help you believe that. Do you believe that giving is a good work for God's kingdom? Sometimes we don't give joyfully because we don't, See, and maybe it's because it's been poorly modeled for us in the past. I don't know. I can't go into all of our lives and, and, and dissect and, and deconstruct and then reconstruct all of our experiences in church and, and giving and the way churches have handled money. I, I can't do that. But do you really believe that giving is good work for God's kingdom? Do you Listen, we support six church planters, seven church Six church planners, sorry, and a local sports ministry. Your giving, all of our giving collectively goes to support six church planners and a local sports ministry. 
Do you view that as good work for God's kingdom? We should. And lastly, do you realize that giving worshipfully and joyfully is an impossible task if you attempt to do it on your own? It's impossible. But God has not left us alone. He's given us two things to help us in this. Number one, he's given us his spirit. The first great help God has given us is his spirit. And so this morning, if you struggle to give it all, if you struggle to give joyfully, maybe you give and it's not joyfully, maybe it's begrudgingly or reluctantly, maybe you don't give it all, then ask God to give you the faith to give joyfully. Ask God to change your heart and mind so that you would see your money as an act of, stewarding your money as an act of worship unto him. And have faith that he will indeed change your heart. Ask him to help you give joyfully. Have faith that he indeed will change your heart. The second thing that God has given us, the second great help that God has given us, is his church. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his church. Paul used, I find it remarkable that Paul used another church to encourage the Corinthian church to give joyfully. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that God's church is a help to other people. And so if you struggle to give joyfully, if you struggle to give it all, if you're like, man, I just don't get it at all. I think it's stupid. I've seen churches take their money and they build big buildings and their pastors make tons of money. Whatever your complaint may be, or maybe you just view your own finances. You're like, I, don't, I just can't give. I don't have the money to give. Then talk about it in your missional community. Be humble. Bring it up. Say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Can you guys help me? Talk to me. Tell me about the way your journey in giving. Where did it start? When did you start giving? But God has given you his spirit to empower you to do this. And he's given you his church to encourage you to do it faithfully. If you'll stand with me, we'll pray. God, I pray this morning and I trust, really, God, in your Holy Spirit, God, the, the, the Spirit of God to be um, present, God, and to convict our hearts and to overcome our resistance. And we are asking your Spirit to do just that right now, God. We are asking your Spirit to overcome our resistance to you, God, so that we would find you and your grace as irresistible. I pray, God, as I know that this series is challenging on many levels for many people. I pray, God, that, people would, that our people would not lose heart, that our church would not lose heart, God. But, Lord, that we would be challenged, God, to grow in maturity, into full stature, into the nature of Christ Jesus. I pray, God, that we would look to Jesus and that we would learn more and that we would contemplate, God, that we would meditate throughout the days, God, on the joy that was set before Christ to endure the cross. Thank you that you are a God who did hard, difficult, painful things so that we could be saved. I pray, God, that we would be a people who reflect that. Not just that you have done it for us, but, God, that we would do it for others. Help our hearts, God, not to 
be pulled astray by the lies of the world that life is about happiness. Thank you, God, that you've given us your spirit to empower us to do this and that you've given us your church, God, to encourage us to stay faithful. Amen.